0: Hello, and welcome to The Quantum Divide. This is the podcast that talks about the literal divide between classical IT and quantum technology. And the fact that these two domains are, will, and need to become closer together. We're going to try and focus on networking topics. Quantum networking actually is more futuristic than perhaps the computing element of it. But we're going to try and focus on that domain. But we're bound to experience many different tangents. Both in podcast topics and conversation, as we go on, enjoy. Okay, Steve, how are you doing? Same old,
1: bit of a rough voice today, but should be able to power through for an
0: hour. Good, good. now I'm looking forward to this discussion. Simulation, to me, it can mean so many different things, and I know simulation in the traditional IT world covers many different aspects of virtualization and end-to-end systems. I think it's probably going to be quite different in the quantum networking world. So why don't we start first of all, by just getting a view on what network simulation is for quantum networks specifically.
1: Yeah. For quantum networks, simulation can mean a couple of things. For me, it's about simulating using software, and executing events in in some sequence, and then processing those events in some way so that you can learn particular aspects of whatever you want to simulate, About physical layer, talking about how your simulation runs with respect to a particular fiber loss parameter, or a particular noise parameter in the hardware. There's a lot of aspects you can simulate using physical layer and all the other Kind of models. But this primarily means writing code that actually processes events. In another direction, what people sometimes refer to as simulation is taking a mathematical model and then applying a mathematical model to another mathematical model in order to achieve some kind of analytical equation to come up with some trends on the plot, which is also a form of simulation. So we simulate. Applying mathematical models to mathematical models, and you get nice curves that are smooth in most cases, and they are executed very quickly.
0: Okay. Let me take a step back for a second, Mm -hmm. just to compare to the the traditional IT world. Simulation and virtualized, building a virtualized network to test a particular thing, it's evolved significantly over the years. Used to be quite difficult to do with the advent of virtualization, with the advent of virtual software images, these days, when you simulate a network, you are literally taking software versions of network nodes as they would run in hardware or in software in production, and because they all connect typically via native Ethernet connections, which can be simulated in a virtual switch, you get a real replica of the network with the same software features that you would have in production, and it is a carbon copy typically. Or at least a cut down version of the different elements of the network. So you can test particular features. Obviously, it's used for those types of things are used for training and education and simulating tests and simulating changes that you then want to implement into production and that kind of thing. With quantum networks, the that software to run the actual nodes doesn't really exist in a standard format or any productized format anywhere you still have the same number of layers to deal with i.e physical forwarding of packets or qubits and then decision making each node has to have some type of intelligence in the way that it is receiving the qubits sending the qubits dealing with the qubits uh, building entanglement and those kind of things but we can't really compare the two can we and say that they're similar Right. right they're both forms of simulation but the Quantum simulation, from what I can tell, there's it's much more theoretical, and that's understandable because of where we are in terms of market maturity and so on, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly how I see it as well. So, like you said, the classical networks, they have well-defined layers. We have operating systems, they have software involved with those things, and we're not really at the stage of classical networks anymore where we actually care much about fiber loss in the channel, or at least at the simulation stage for the general population. We're mostly con- concerned about how do we control the network and upgrade the protocols for communication, but the physical hardware is a separate class for most people. But in quantum networks, that's very much all we care about right now, is how does the physical layer affect the protocol we're trying to implement? Because we have theoretical ideas of how to write a protocol that achieves some property, perfect security, blind computation, all these things that require transmission of quantum bits. But when you introduce noise, then a lot of things fall apart and we don't have protocols to accommodate for noise. So therefore we only care about the noise. (laughs) We care about, so how to, we care about how to modify our protocols so that we can deal with the noise. So first we need to know how does noise affect the protocol. And that's the stage of quantum network. So we mostly simulate for that property. And also the the layers above the physical layer are not really well-defined anyway. So the virtualization of network nodes is not ready yet. So it might be one company builds a network virtualizer, second company builds, but those won't have anything in common because there's no standards. And so that's too early, I would say, for that. But it's coming, I think, especially for quantum key distribution. We can probably start thinking about this is overlap between the classical, because we're beyond the point where we don't understand what the physical layer does to QKD. We're past that stage. We know what it does. And now we need to start thinking about programming the QKD network. And that's when this classical, and analogous classical software can come in. So we
0: can't compare them because they're not really doing the same thing, even though it's still a network, like you said, it really is more of a physical layer set of models. And noise, you mentioned noise. It's the same in quantum computing, right? There's mm. so much noise, and we're still learning how to deal with it. That error correction is improving its efficacy, but it's still not good enough where we can achieve what we call a logical qubit, which is essentially errorless and can function reliably. Quite often, the number of logical qubits you have is smaller than the physical qubits, right? Because there's going to be a percentage of error rate, but that's improving over time. It's probably the same with the network, right? So let's We can talk about that in a minute. I think noise is a really good topic because that's if this is the key of the way that software is written at the moment is to learn and plan how to deal with noise in the network, then we should definitely focus on that. But first of all, why do we need simulation? I mean, there's the obvious fact that hardware doesn't exist yet and that we can do things like feasibility tests of the way different nodes interact with each other but ultimately when it comes down to testing this systemic function of a network the way that the different nodes interact the the, the forwarding whether there's entanglement and so on isn't it difficult to effectively simulate all of this in software and if that's the case then isn't there a huge amount of work that's going to take place in simulation, which actually isn't going to be useful when it comes to putting it into physical systems or is the simulation part of the product development?
1: Yeah. For me, the perspective is that simulation is essential, definitely for the first reason you said, we don't have the hardware to test our protocols. We don't know if they're going to work. So we always have to model these systems. And then once they're modeled on paper using mathematical equations, being able to really interact with those models in an efficient way in my opinion, requires simulation. And then we can understand how the hardware's behave when you interconnect things and put things together and see how does it work in, a kind of, in an engineering setting but in a simulated engineering setting. But the other part, so thinking about the efficiency of the simulations, one thing that networks have an advantage over quantum computing simulations is a lot of the systems are much smaller size. So we don't need to simulate huge entangled states. So in quantum computing, the classical limit is about 20 qubits of entangled quantum states. Maybe you can get to 40 or something. It depends on how the implementation is made, but certainly less than something like 50. A normal supercomputer is about 50 qubits of entangled states. But in quantum networks, we're not really dealing with massive entangled states. Maybe it's 10 qubits of GHZ states, But even that is rare. Generally, we're just working with bell pairs. And that's just a small matrix and many copies of the small matrix. So you can do much more complicated things with more independent quantum systems. So the efficiency is actually not too bad. That doesn't mean it's perfect. There's a lot of things that come with the overhead. It's not only now do we need to consider what does the protocol do, but a lot of the network features involve timing aspects. So you also have to think about how do you measure time in the simulation? That's a big aspect. And that could be done efficiently or it could be done inefficiently. So there's different ways to do it, depending on what you need your simulation to do. Yeah. And so we can get into the topic of how time is tracked in network simulation or quantum. That's a quite interesting topic, actually, I think. So there's two ways that really we do timing in quantum network simulation. And the primarily used one is called discrete event simulation. And the main benefit of discrete event simulation is you don't have to wait the amount of time your simulation takes, but if you're in your simulation takes a year, you don't actually have to wait a year, you simulate the time so that a year can pass in a much more efficient way. Not only that is you can define your unit of time. Much more easily. So you can trigger things to happen at whatever unit scale you want. If you need things to trigger in microsecond units, you can program it to do that. And then what happens is an event is triggered, and then a random amount of time is programmed to be delayed. You don't actually wait that much time. You just, the simulation engine will say, next event happened some amount of time later. And this happens very quickly, and your simulation runs very efficiently. On the other hand, there's the real time event simulation where you lose the track of when events are triggered because you're running things based on how fast your computer can execute. And there you really don't have control over the timing aspects, unless you put a layer of timing on top, of course, but in the raw form of real event, uh, real time event simulation, you're basically working at the speed of your CPU. And there's advantages to that too. It makes it easier to do things like distributed simulation. So if you have a network of computers working together to simulate a network, it's much more easy to develop this kind of thing using real-time simulation. And yeah, so both have advantages and disadvantages. Primarily, we're using discrete event simulation because we just want to know how does the physical layer affect the protocol. But when we're thinking about things like actually implementing communication protocols and we don't really think about the noise in those cases, then the real-time event simulation has an advantage that you can actually put messages to the internet and come back down and run things in a more networky way, let's say.
0: Okay. So that covers some of the kind of elements of the way thinking about time is different when it comes to quantum network simulation. What would help me, I think, is to get a feel for what a simulated quantum network looks like and by that in the traditional world i may have a number of different nodes each with their own os there's connections between them traffic being sent and routing protocols between the different nodes i understand that we're looking down at more of the hardware layer but what is it that builds up uh, let's say a generic network simulation okay obviously there are the nodes have some kind of software some code running, but can you give us a view on what that would look like and what types of connections they have between each other? I imagine there's a quantum and a classical channel of some kind. And uh, I know that there are methodologies out there or frameworks, so perhaps that could, we could flow onto that as the next, the next topic as well. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I think in general, most of these frameworks all have the same core ideas and how they implement those core ideas is different depending on the framework. But there's a lot of overlap between the frameworks as well. So generally, you start with having to define the network topology. So that means setting up all the nodes piece by piece, defining the connections between the nodes, and then next step is define the properties for each of those pieces. So you say, what's the loss of the channel? How much noise does the channel introduce? How that noise is introduced? There's a lot of properties depending on the components then you can think about things like how are the nodes implemented? What components do the nodes have? Do they have X hardware, Y hardware included? So you have to set up all those pieces before you start writing the logic of the simulation. Then that's the next step is to write the logic of the simulation. Each node has a functionality. You program the functionality, and then you assign the functionality to the nodes that should execute that functionality. And then you run the simulation and you wait for some time, wait for it to finish. All the events get triggered. Then you have some statistics out. Depends how you program it. That's usually how it goes. depends on the simulation framework, but some parts are more in-depth than others. And the simulation engines that exist today that are more commonly used, those are primarily for discrete event simulation, but there are also other real-time simulators. So for me, my favorite one right now is called NetSquid and NetSquid is a discrete event simulation engine. It uses qubits for the information processing and information encodings. Not all of them use qubits, by the way, that's an important feature. You can also do things using continuous variable systems with other simulators or different encoding methods. But NetSquid uses an abstract qubit model that it's not really to find how the qubit is implemented, it's just a qubit. Is it a photon? Is it an electron? Is it a superconductor? Somehow it's just a qubit and it goes through the network. We don't know what it's made out of. But it has a lot of features, a lot of power, a lot of diver- diversity. I don't know. You can do a lot of cool things with it. A lot of the modules are already programmed into the system or into the engine. And you just Lego them together and to build your simulation with all the components and then. It's not easy at first. It takes a lot of learning to figure out how to use Netsquid and do, use it properly. But once you learn it, it's really powerful and you can really simulate complex systems. Uh, and then on the other hand, there's a Qnetsim, which is a real-time event simulator that takes away all the complexity of network simulation and makes it as easy as possible to get started. Qnetsim is more of an educational tool, but it still has this kind of core properties where you have to define the topology and write the logic for each of the nodes. and But you have to wait a little longer for the simulation to run because it's running at the speed of the computer running the simulation. Yeah. And so there are two others that I'll mention is the sim, which simulates the layers above the physical layer, specifically to determine how to implement a quantum key distribution network. So it's gives you the bits in the classical form. It has nothing to do with the physical layer. You're actually ignoring the physical layer in the simulator, but it allows you to implement the software layer of the quantum key distribution network and simulate that part of the network. And then the last one I'll mention is called sequence. And this I'm not as familiar with, but as far as I understand, it's more about the optics. So you're looking at the physical components more closely than in Netsquid. And you're talking about real qubit models. This is the photons using like time-band encoding or polarization encodings. You have photon detectors and all these really optical components and they're explicitly defined as optical components. So you're really at the layer of the lab. You're basically simulating an optical table at this point. And there it's harder to grasp than Nesquid, I'd say, because you need to know what is a single photon source or what is the photon detector how do you encode information in time being encoded photon? It's much more involved, but on the other end, you get more accuracy. You have the realism of a lab essentially in your, on your computer, (laughs) but there's, so there's different levels of difficulty, different levels of realism and different uses for each one.
0: Yeah. So there isn't one size fits all. It depends on what you want to simulate. It sounds like NetSquid could, might be the one that allows you to do all of the layers or at least have better control, all of the layers. But yeah, you said that's has got a it's more com- complex to manage and, and learn. Let me go on to something that the methodologies do. You mentioned earlier on simulating noise. So some of them, perhaps QNET SIM, perhaps there is no need for noise simulation because it's more about the logical interaction between qubits and the different components. Is that the case? And what about the other ones where they are more? there's more detailed control over the noise? What kind of level of things are you tuning? Is it about, the, you know, th- things in a physical fiber that cause loss, are connector loss, intrinsic absorption of photons and things, but it probably doesn't go to that physical layer, right? It's more about x number of photons are lost between certain points, and therefore the, the nodes have to be able to deal with that somehow. Is it? I'm thinking of it like packet loss, photon loss.
1: Is so The ones that have more details So actually each of these network simulators handle loss in some way. So each one has their way of handling noise and loss in, in the network. And most of them are at the qubit level, except QKD NetSim. So let me talk about the ones that do it at the qu- qubit level. Okay. So generally the way you would model this is you have your channel. And in the programming language, you can say error, you can set the error model. And the error model acts qubit by qubit. So it says, when the qubit enters the channel, apply this error model to it and apply it with some probability. And that's really a low level. So you're looking at really the bits and the bits in the packet. It's not like you have packet lost, you have like bits in the payload are lost. And there's no way to know. There's no way to to read the header and do a checksum and say, okay, the, the packet was corrupt. It's like the qubits arrive and they're just missing. <laughs> yeah, you can't read then, them. Exactly. Yeah. So there's like tricks and stuff in practice, but generally you don't know that there's a loss. Well, there's loss, but you don't know immediately. You have to do some pr- procedure. And you might not even know until you measure the entire system. Because you might need to think about the frequency of transmission and the frequency of detection. So those things don't match. If you're measuring, if you're sending one per second and you receive one every two seconds, maybe <laughs> some of those are lost. Anyway, but generally it's a lot harder to deal with, a lot harder to, to understand loss and how to deal with loss in quantum networks in general. But then in simulation, at least you have the ability to think about those things because, of course, in simulation you have this godlike ability to understand exactly which every event that occurs with losses and you can program something to happen. But in practice, we don't have that over. You don't know when loss is going to happen. So that's still like always in under the umbrella of physical layer simulation, because we don't know how to deal with that problem. And then as an exception, there's the QKD net SIM, which says the packet had X amount of loss, do what you want. The packet still arrived. There's still something in the payload, but now you have to do the processing in the, whatever way you program it to do, it just you can set that loss parameter, but it's not at the qubit level anymore, it's just a number. Because in the packet originally was 100,000 qubits, when it arrived, they were a thousand. What to do? So that's a detected event, and you can program it accordingly. That so was what's the
0: general impact from this loss in, in these simulated situations Be- because you can't necessarily read the qubits to check they're okay as they come into the interface Mm -hmm. is it a matter of needing to run the whatever the calculation or process is that is being run onto the qubits and then if there are any missing then it will fail and that's why you run certainly on a quantum computer multiple shots to get a better probability spectrum of where what the answer is, if you like. But when you've now got introducing loss over the network, that's going to affect the resulting curve, isn't it, of what the responses look like. So it's going to make the calculation that's made across a network is going to be more error-prone, basically. Is that the end result? Or are you only looking at the situation where the calculations are local to the individual node?
1: Yeah, this is tricky. So this is depends on what application you're simulating. So for QKD loss, generally we program loss into the simulation to determine the rate of key distribution. So we would say, okay, every fifth qubit is lost that it decreases the ability to generate key. So per transmission, we can transmit on average some number of bits, but because of loss, that number could go down. So every fifth qubit is lost I'm decrease the average rate of transmission. Same with entanglement distribution, entanglement doesn't contain any information so we're not doing anything logical but it with more loss decreases the rate of entanglement distribution. With things like distributed quantum computing simulation then you might start to think about that statistical curve of how the measurement results were laid out. And then noise, what happens with loss is you have to retry. So usually in distributed quantum computing, you need to establish entanglement between nodes. And if that takes longer to do, more noise is in the system and you have more noisy outputs. Um, yeah, so that's the kind of the reason we, the primary reason we're doing, we're introducing losses. is you know, always study what happens to the physical systems. And generally, at least the things I work on is because the primary goal of quantum mechanics right now is to enable entanglement distribution or do QKD. Primarily, we're looking at key rates or entanglement distribution rates. And that's what the loss parameter is basically for.
0: Okay. Let's talk about simulation of entanglement. Um, To me, it would just mean in a simulator, if something's entangled, you're just configuring the nodes so that they respond once. There's a measurement made on one side in a particular way. And that if there are errors, then you lose some of the bell pairs that are being sent across. Is it as simple as that? Or is there some more complexity to modeling the entanglement, like the rotation of the qubits and in the, in the superposition state that they're in and so on?
1: Yeah. So simulating entanglement, most of these simulators are simulating density matrix where we basically just model the qubit using the density matrix formalism. And then you can see exactly where's the noise. But there's a little bit more complexity to it as well. Because when you're simulating entanglements, there's usually more than one qubit involved. Yes, there always is more than one qubit involved in an entangled state. And you don't want the programs to allow the nodes to act on qubits that aren't physically present at their simulated location. So let's say I'm simulating Alice and Bob. And Alice generates two qubits, entangles them, and sends one of those qubits to Bob. The simulation engine should prevent Alice from acting on Bob's qubit because it's impossible. If she doesn't have access to it, it should block that. So there's a bit of a layer of not only what is the qubit state, but where is that qubit also? Who owns that qubit and where is it? (laughs) Sorry, where is the qubit and what's the state, let's say? (laughs) And yeah. So we have to make sure in the simulations that we're not cheating. We're cheating always in simulation, but not cheating to an extent that this can never be done. Alice can never act on Bob's qubit if they're not close to each other.
0: Yeah, the results need to be meaningful, right? And if there are steps which are taken which are impossible in a physical deployment, when and if that's possible to replicate what's being done in the simulation, then it it needs to be meaningful, so it needs to be as realistic as possible. You mentioned a density matrix, so I understand that to be a matrix, i.e. a mathematical matrix, that describes the quantum state of the system. Is that per qubit or is it for the whole system? In which case that would cover multiple qubits and m- matrices obviously can get very big in that mm-hmm. case.
1: Yeah, this is the this was the one of the key advantages of network simulation is it's generally per qubit until entanglement is created. Then you need to expand the density matrix, but in network simulation, we don't deal with massive entangled states, like I was saying. So therefore you, you, it's it's pure system, let's say, pure entangled system, but not all of the system at once. I think that would be very, that would make it probably impossible because you in simulations you're generating thousands of qubits, maybe millions of qubits in a simulated fashion. It could be that they all exist at once, and then we have no way to simulate that. But you can easily simulate one million two by two matrices, and yeah. those would represent a qubit, or four by four, which is a Bell pair. Bell pair, yeah, yeah, okay. mm. and that's yeah. That's one big advantage for network simulation. It's easier to achieve somehow.
0: Okay. Did do you want some question about the simulation of entanglement? Mm. I think so. If you lose one part of, if Bob's part of the entangled pair is lost on route, then simulator also needs to take that into account, right? So that if Alice makes a measurement, then it doesn't have any impact to anything that Bob is holding and Bob can't make the, the measurement on the supposed qubit that would have arrived had there not been loss. And I think we're too early on to have any, actually how in that scenario, how would the node that Bob has? tell Alice that it they didn't receive the other end of the entangled pair. Is there some bi-directional information flow there, maybe over the classical channel to, there needs to be some kind of tagging of qubits or some identification of qubits. Is that stuff simulated at this point in time as well?
1: Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, so what's interesting is this is exactly what needs to be developed to perform entanglement distribution in reality. So how does Bob act when the qubit is lost? How, do they, how does Bob even know that the qubit was lost? So those things actually come down to realistic things. That's no longer simulation. We still have to write the protocols in order to deal with that. When the qubit is lost in simulation, it's in practice, in the scope of the simulation, it's also lost. It means Bob can't access it, Alice can't access it, and the simulation should determine that none of the parties can access it. And they should prevent it from happening in in the simulation engine. Then the question is, how does Bob respond? Maybe he's waiting X amount of seconds before the qubit arrives. If he detects nothing, he will send a message back to Alice, but that's the protocol. That's what the instructions has to be programmed. And it's up to the author of the simulator to write those instructions and handle loss. So what someone might do is they might come up with a protocol for what to do when the entanglement pair is lost. their response is, their coordination approach is much better than someone else's approach. And then you write a paper and you show my attainment rate with this loss parameter is two, fi- two factor better than what pre- previously was stated. So it's it comes down to what's the protocol, what's the idea and what to do with this loss. So the simulator just gives you the fact that there is loss. How you respond to loss is up to the creative author. <laughs> so the creativity of the author.
0: It seems total chaos at the moment like in terms of the, in, in anything that comes out in a paper like that, the amount of variables in the system, how it's developed, the measurements they're taking, the rate, the compute capabilities they've got, the mathematical equations underpinning it all, all of these things, variables. So it's incredibly hard to, when you see something like that, that and you do see a paper on some kind of incremental improvement on a previous behavior or a new type of outcome, You've got to almost take people's word for it because the complexity behind it is so difficult unless you're a PhD in in physics and have been quite, and studying this for a long time. It might be easier for you than for me, I would think. But is there still a level of assuming that correlations and things are all relevant and statements on improvements are factual?
1: Yeah, this is an interesting topic. So usually when you have a paper that is about... The results are based on a simulation. Usually what it looks like is there's a protocol written explicitly, so you can read exactly what the instructions are. And then the results are, we programmed those instructions into the simulation and then ran the simulation, and this is what came out. I don't like when, and I'm also guilty of it, so I should just be careful with my own work. When there's the papers like that, and I have papers like that, where the simulation code is not public. Yeah. And there's multiple reasons why that could not be public. For example, when you work at a company like I do, you have to go through some hoops to get your code open source. It's not always difficult, but it's also not always trivial. It's not always worth the time of doing it. And actually many papers, they they have this flaw where the code is not available. Can you actually validate? Can I go and read the code to see that this is the protocol that was implemented and these are the results that were out? Or could I just go on generate this trend using some plotting library and then I just copy and paste the code copy and paste the chart and put it in my paper and say, look, it's better than state of the art. So there's always there is some level of trust where you say, I believe that these authors went and wrote the code and they wrote it correctly, bug free, and now you know that's the result and it's better than what was before. But I don't like it. <laughs> I think every simulation paper should have the code explicit, so anyone can go and verify that the results are what they're supposed to be.
0: But, but even then, who is going to check all the different simulators to check the, the algorithms, the code, the processes in the code and so on, the methodology. People write code differently and yeah. they might have the same outcome, but the code is very different to read. It's almost like there, there needs to be some kind of standard simulator framework. I mean, you mentioned this, the frameworks earlier on NetSquid, QNetSim, SIM and so on. Then I guess they're all different as well. And in a lot of cases, we're talking about a simulator where the researcher has written it themselves rather than used a public framework. Is there enough in these simulation frameworks that are open source or close to open source that can help solve that issue where there's a big chasm between knowing whether you're comparing apples and apples when looking at different simulation outcomes? Mm
1: -hmm. At the moment, there's not really such a way that you can kind of standardize the simulations. But with one exception, I think Netsquid is, at least it was putting in this direction, I don't know what's the status, but they still work on this, but they have this idea of modules of, or plugins, for example. So if you want to build your own entanglement distribution protocol, you can define that as a plugin, put it into the Netsquid framework, and then other people can use it as well. So if everyone is sharing the same modules and then improving on a protocol can almost trust that a bit more because other people have used it. It's been through some review. It's not the first time someone uses it and it's open source and everyone can read the code. So I like that idea, like being able to, to take other people's work, put it into your own work, play around with it, modify it, and then say, look, it's just a epsilon difference from before, but it's this much improvement in the protocol I changed so much code from the previous works. It's a little bit of a smaller step than writing your own simulation framework and then running your simulations on that framework and then saying, look, I have this nice graphs. <laughs> and it's pretty common with quantum because the tools are hard to use. But it's sometimes easier just to write your own framework to do exactly what you need it to do because you know how to do it instead of spending like two weeks or a month learning another framework. It's a rough area. I think it's still something that needs to be improved.
0: Yeah, so many unknowns and questions when it comes to evaluating what gets put out there. Interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how it evolves over time.
1: But if you look towards the quantum computing, I think it probably started off in that stage as well. But as the engines got more powerful, like Qiskit, there's probably over a thousand papers written based on Qiskit at this point. And I think what step needs to be taken is someone has to write Qiskit for quantum networks, (laughs) it has to be a powerful simulation engine, well supported, you know, lots of effort put in, make it look as good as possible, easy to use documentation that will get people attracted to the simulation framework and that's what we need. So right now things are half dead, not maintained, bugs, not enough documentation, too hard to use. That's quantum network simulation. So it's, it's not a peaceful environment. Qiskit, on the other hand, it's so well developed, so much. Involvement, community, everything. That's how we need quantum network simulation
0: to be I think. Yeah. Awesome. So is it worth, I wanted to ask about repeaters and I'm not sure where, I don't want to go into the topic of what a repeater is. It's a node that is basically used to extend the link length of connecting multiple nodes, but using entanglement. And let's not go into the detail of how it works, but when it comes to simulation, Is there anything special about simulating a repeater? Have you seen any, have you seen anything in any of those frameworks about simulating repeaters or are we not there yet?
1: I would say, actually, I would say simulations of quantum repeaters is probably 50% of the papers that come up doing that effectively because it's a combination of, it's two, two directional to the same path. So simulation of a quantum repeater is done for analyzing how Well, an entanglement distribution protocol is using quantum repeaters. And then on the other hand is the physical aspects of the quantum repeater. How is the performance of it depending on the memory or the detection efficiency, all kinds of things. So that's, it's really popular to simulate quantum repeaters because it's the core of almost everything at quantum internet. Yeah, there's, I can think of a few papers that are like high impact that are based on simulation quantum repeaters.
0: yeah we'll put those in the show notes right i think that'd be good to include that in the show notes for people to read as a follow-up now one thing you've mentioned multiple times is entanglement distribution protocol again the same question around standardization or i probably shouldn't use that word i would say conformity of the way people are modeling entanglement distribution protocol and it's probably different across the each of the frameworks will it what are your views on what needs to be defined there to make it common again is it, is it part of the kiss kit for networks that you mentioned I, ibm aren't paying us for this but it would be perhaps they could sponsor us next time the amount of times hmm. mention it yeah so could you do, could you talk a bit more about entanglement distribution protocol i know it's a core part of the way repeaters and the nodes need to work it's almost like the ip i see it of traditional ip-routed networking the ip needs to work effectively end-to-end and the nodes that are on the network need to in, interoperate up and down the stack and be able to communicate in a set way. And I guess that's what's required here, isn't it? Because the, once the entangled pairs are set up, then that then allows you to do the higher order operations using that functionality. Sure.
1: Yeah. So it's the way qubits are transmitted are using this entanglement distribution and teleportation with the repeaters to form long distance entanglement. Connections. But the way that entanglement is distributed in practice, we can think of okay, a qubit is generated, another one is generated, we entangle them, we send half to the second person. They have everything, everything can be done in this noiseless fashion. And in simulation, you can cheat on so many things. For example, the classical messaging involved for producing an entangled pair is almost always ignored <laughs> in simulation. So what messages do Alice and Bob need to say that they're reliably agreeing that the entangled pair that Alice, the half of the entangled pair that Alice sent to Bob is the same one that was sent and it's there and it's ready to use. In simulation, you could ignore all that messaging and you just perform your operations because it's an event and you can use your godlike ability (laughs) of simulation to determine that those events happened. So my point there is this, the protocol, the entanglement distribution protocol includes those classical messaging parts. And that part is what I, the that's what I call the entanglement distribution protocol. It includes both the transmission of the quantum states plus the classical messaging on top that can allow Alice and Bob to know, yes, those entanglement units are there and they're ready to operate. Feel free to send me the next message kind of thing. So yeah. it's kind of like a handshake.
0: And who's working on that? It sounds like in all the simulators, they're ignoring it because perhaps it hasn't been standardized and it's too complex to, to create your own version. Why bother? Just assume that it works. And therefore, the user of the simulator can start to think about the more higher order stuff. But in the real world, none of that's going to work until there's a stable ability to do this, to to distribute the entangled pairs and manage them, right?
1: Exactly. So it's like finding the best case scenario that's, Likely impossible, but still is the best case scenario non-zero. That's the goal. <laughs> if I do this and I don't even need classical messaging yet, can I achieve my protocol at all? <laughs> and then you can. It only gets worse as you add classical messaging. The performance only degrades. So I think that's why it's still meaningful because you think, is it even possible in some aspects? And then you make it harder for yourself by adding noise by adding classical messaging. And it just gets worse and worse but you need to raise the bar quite high before you can bring it down to the realistic level <laughs> and still be off the ground <laughs> what we're
0: highlighting here is that there's so many areas that need that need to evolve for an end-to-end system for a quantum internet to exist right in in talking about simulation like this it's quite eye-opening to highlight the gaps certainly been useful for me to think about them with you so thanks steve as usual
1: is there yes, anything I else you
0: wanted to, uh, to tag on the end? Or I guess we could always come back to simulation in the future as things evolve, if there's any big jumps in what code and software is out there and developments people are making. Thanks so much. It's a fascinating topic with so many unknowns and lots of ambiguity.
1: Yep. Thanks. Great chat as always. Catch okay, next time.
0: I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to the podcast. Quantum networking is such a broad domain. Especially considering the breadth of quantum physics and quantum computing, all as an undercurrent, easily to get sucked into. So much is still in the research realm, uh, which can make it really tough for a curious IT guy to know where to start. So hit subscribe or follow me on your podcast platform. and I'll do my best to bring you more prevalent topics in the world of quantum networking. Spread the word. It would really help us out.